News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if you are still trying to come up with that perfect small gift for somebody and you want to make it from scratch and you're thinking, hey, what about a homemade mask? That's something my loved one could use this year. You need to listen to this next interview. Stephen Rogak is a professor of mechanical engineering at UBC. In the fall, he and a team of researchers decided to test the most popular types of fabrics for masks to find out just how well they filtered particles while remaining still breathable and comfortable. And he spoke to Simi Sarah about those findings. Well, what we're doing is taking uh, patches of, of cloth or patches cut out of um, commercial masks to test against those. And we uh, basically flow air through this mask material and the air contains um, a sample aerosol um, simulating what, the, what you'd have carrying the COVID, but obviously not with the COVID virus. And we measure the concentration before and after the swatch and determine what the mask has removed. Okay, and what did you find? Like, are all masks in some way beneficial? Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, certainly uh, for the size range of interest, which is probably above one micron in size, um, those would be the particles most likely, to, and, and maybe even above 10 microns, those would likely contain the COVID particles. Um, any kind of cloth material is, is better than nothing. Uh, but none of them approach the level of filtration of an N95 mask that we've heard so much about. Right, that's the problem that we've heard so much, but not everybody has one of those. Uh, but what materials yeah. worked best? Um, well, again, uh, not everybody needs an N95 mask, and, and probably to a large extent that's overkill. So the, um, we shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good here, and, and that any mask is really a lot better than nothing. Um, but the but of those homemade materials, uh, some are definitely better, and uh, materials like um, a loose... Um, Knit cotton works pretty well because um, it's quite breathable and the individual fibers tend to fray a little bit and you you have on a microscopic level uh, essentially tiny hairs which are better at catching particles than than big bundles of um, tightly woven fibers. So the the cotton works quite well and some of the synthetics work uh, quite poorly in terms of being uh, not very breathable and not capturing that many particles. Interesting. So that's the common materials. Yeah. So yeah, the common ones. What are some of the ones? That, was there anything that surprised you when you did this? Um, well, I guess I guess uh, just how poorly some of the synthetics do. Um, some early on in the pandemic, we we heard and we were a little skeptical of some of the advice that you want the the tightest weave that you can get. You know, like a a silk or polyester that looks like it's got lets no air through. It also lets no uh, lets no light through. It also lets no air through and and in some cases, those materials would uh, allow, uh, say, 95% of the particles of size interest to actually penetrate, whereas uh, cotton would be doing, um, a single layer of cotton might be doing uh, many, many times better. So that was surprising. There are some materials to stay away from. Um, and then uh, it turns out that dried baby wipes um, do quite well as a filter material if you're making a multi-layer mask in which you can put a filter layer, and right. many people are building those. The dried baby wipes um, are cleanable. You can wash them, and they don't degrade, uh, so they're reusable, and they have a better 
uh, trade-off between breathability and filtration uh, than almost any of the um, conventional cloths you might make uh, clothing out of. That is so fascinating because the filter is such an important part of this when people make it, but you're saying you don't need anything fancy for this, just go to the drugstore. Well, I, again, none of these none of these are going to do as well as um, as uh, N95 masks or commercial masks. But um, the nice thing about these homemade masks is you can make them fit properly for your face, and they're reusable, so we don't end up with a, a mountain of um, used masks all over the landfills and the sidewalks. Okay, so then, Stephen, if someone were to build a mask, they wanted to make a homemade mask, how would you recommend that they put this together? I would recommend against the skin, you probably want something that's uh, comfortable and soft. So there, the the cotton material is good. It wicks moisture away. And uh, something that's comfortable is probably more important even than the filtration quality because, uh, again, any mask is better than nothing. And if you have something you're willing to wear that's... um, that's really important. And then the next layer out would be the filter layer, which um, could be the dried baby wipes. It could also be um, uh, from the drugstore non-medical masks. If you, um, Those materials right. are actually not bad, um, but often those masks themselves don't fit very well. And uh, then on the outer side, um, you can use something, almost anything, as long as it's breathable, uh, you know, to protect the, the whole mask, uh, keep dirt away from things, uh, something that you can clean. And there, there, a smooth material might be fine, although you have to make sure it's breathable. Okay, so this sounds like what a lot of people have kind of learned through trial and error already, doesn't it? you kind of confirming yeah, and, that. And, and it's consistent with uh, the WHO guidelines, um, although they've, uh, they, they specifically recommend a uh, very smooth outer layer, which is waterproof. Probably not that important for most people to have a waterproof outer layer, but, it's, but they do recommend an inner wicking layer against the skin, and, and we believe that is very important, um, especially when the weather is still a little warmer and, and uh, these masks can be kind of hot. So. so then, Stephen, on a final note here, once again, what are the materials that people should stay away from when it comes to making face masks? Uh, really tightly woven flat weaves could be a problem. And, and because it's the issue of breathability or lack thereof, um, those are things that you could probably test yourself in the sense that um, if you have difficulty uh, inhaling through that material, uh, that would probably be a poor choice for an outer layer. All right, we'll keep all that in mind. Thank you so much for this. You're very welcome. Well, we are talking about holiday traditions. Maybe you have changed your traditions this year, given the circumstances. We want to hear from you about that. Also talking about some of the few things that are bringing some light into people's lives these days. And Nikki Wright-Meyer joins me to talk more about this. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. I heard you and Gord talking about the Great Conjunction, the Christmas star. (laughs) We were. And uh, I don't think Gord was out. It might have been past his bedtime, even though it was 5 p.m., I think, when you could really (laughs) see it. Uh, But I made the trek up to Queen Elizabeth Park to see it, uh, and it was kind of cool. That'd probably be a great spot to view it from. Yes, I was not the only one with that idea. There were a few other people there, but uh, still physically distanced. But people were excited to see it. And when it first came into view, uh, it was it was it was nice to kind of stand there and see something. This uh, great thing that was happening hasn't really happened in a way like this for hundreds of years, and to feel really small and insignificant. I enjoyed it. 
I saw it yesterday, but just uh, as they would say, with the naked eye. <laughs> it looked really neat. You know, it was kind of cool to think that this is an event that people haven't seen uh, in this type of proximity for hundreds and hundreds of years. If you had a telescope and you were out in a parking lot or up at Queen Elizabeth Park, then you may have actually been able to see the rings of Saturn as well, which is which is pretty cool. This great conjunction, it happens mm, maybe more more frequently than we may think. It happens every 20 years or so when Jupiter overtakes Saturn in its orbit, but for them to appear so close together is really, really rare. So on Monday, they were just 0.1 degree apart, which makes this particularly special. But of course, keep in mind that on Monday, when they appeared at their closest together, they were still 800 kilometers apart in reality. (laughs) So we have to keep that in mind. But while they pass each other in their orbit, The last time that they came this close to each other was in the year 1623. However, they were too close to the sun. So here on Earth, we couldn't really see them that well up in the sky. So you have to rewind the clock even further back to the year 1226. And that's the last time that this type of conjunction, where they were so close together, was really easy, uh, easily visible from Earth. So over the next few days, you will have a chance to see it because they move apart fairly slowly. So I was reading that until the 25th, it should still look pretty neat if you want to do some stargazing and take a peek. With the naked eye, what you'll see if you look up are two planets, two bright points of light low on the horizon close together, and you'll see one looking brighter than the other. So you'll see Jupiter, which is the brighter one, and then Saturn, which is looking a little bit more dim beside it. So that's what you're looking at. If you use binoculars, you'll still see you know the, the two planets together. They'll look a little bit better, perhaps, than just seeing them with, with the naked eye. And you may even see the largest of Jupiter's four moons and possibly Saturn's largest moon, Titan, as well. And then things are going to be even better, of course. If you bring up the telescope, <laughs> you're going to see even more. So you may actually be able to see it. And I think this is so cool. You might actually be able to see the cloud belt on Jupiter and the ring of Saturn as well. It is so amazing. And if we weren't living in a pandemic, I might have asked a guy who was there last night if I could look through the telescope because he obviously knew what he was doing. And he was the first one to kind of spot it and point it out to everybody because it was so bright even before the sun. The sun had gone down, but it it wasn't dark and it was so bright. And I would have loved to have looked through the telescope, but obviously not going to ask to do that while there's a pandemic going on. But the people with the telescopes seem to be having a, a very good experience looking at it last night. It's so funny you say that because I was thinking the same thing. There was, uh, there's a church parking lot near me, and there was a guy with a telescope there. And the, the, you know, my first thought was, oh, I want to ask him. You know, do you yeah. mind if I take a peek? And you go, oh wait a minute, there's a pandemic happening. I can't just go up to a stranger anymore and ask if I can take a peek into his telescope. Uh, if you do want to wait, though, Jill, we could see something similar in the future. You just have to wait until March fifteenth, twenty eighty. Okay. So if you can hold on until <laughs> then, hopefully there won't be a pandemic and you can find a guy with a telescope and you can ask him if you can take a peek. That's the next time those two planets will pass by in such close proximity. Otherwise, you're really going to have to take your vitamins. Mm-hmm. You'll be waiting until the year 2400 uh-huh. before we see a similar event. All right. Well, I am free on March 18th, 2080. <laughs> so I'm oh, going to pencil yeah, that, that in. Down. Yes. I <laughs> uh, wanted to quickly ask you as well. We were talking about Christmas or traditions that people are changing that up this year. We're going to ask people to call the buzz line and share that. Uh, I was talking to Lisa Pantages, the president of the Polar Bear Swim. As we know, it's going online, which is kind of weird. I'm all, I've almost been inspired to hurl myself, find a beach and hurl myself into the ocean on New Year's Day. Isn't that strange? 
every single year I think I want to partake in the polar bear swim. I'm going to do it. This is the year I'm going to do it. Of course, this year they're being canceled because of the pandemic. Good on you. If you still go out and do it, I think, hey, why the heck not? And maybe even better because, you know, you can find a, a quieter spot, a quieter stretch of beach. And they are looking for alternatives. They're saying, you know, why don't you try something unusual? You know, do the polar bear plunge at home is what at least the organizers of the White Rock polar bear plunger encouraging people to do and then they're asking people to send in photographs of themselves so they're saying <laughs> yeah you know i don't know jump into a, a cold pool or they said you know dump a bucket of ice over your head and call it you know your homemade polar bear plunge and then send them in some photos and they said they're going to give prizes to people at random who photograph themselves doing some kind of alternative polar bear plunge i'm picturing a lot of posts of people in their koi ponds just uh, enjoying <laughs> new year's day with the coin. Yeah, right? There you yeah, go. Sitting there, <laughs> drinking a beer. <laughs> yeah. All right. Nikki, thanks so much. That is Nikki Reitmeyer, our show contributor. Well, BC's provincial health officer says the province has not completely ruled out an extension of the winter break for students, but uh, hasn't committed to that idea either. You know, we're looking at it all the time and what are the things that we need to do. And I think what we've seen here in BC is, is things are leveling off. That was Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking with Global News reporter Richard Zussman earlier this week. What do teachers and those in the schools want to see happen? Joining me on the line is Stephen Price, a Vancouver area elementary school teacher, as well as an education columnist. Stephen, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. What are your thoughts on it not being completely off the table as far as extending the winter break? Well, I, I think um, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely better to know sooner rather than later, I think. Uh, a clear message would be nice. But, uh, but the key, I think, here is that, that it probably wouldn't be an extension of the break. We'd probably be going back to remote learning and, and keeping the kids learning and, and dusting off our, our remote learning skills, I guess, for a week. Right, because that has certainly been one of the messages from Dr. Bonnie Henry, the importance of children being in the learning environment and not falling behind in school and all of the, the positive things that come from that. Exactly. So, so if we did, uh, you know, if, if the, the modeling that they're doing did show that this was helpful, and, and you could sort of think of it in, in that we, we just have these two weeks for free of no school. So if, uh, if a, a reset of, of three or four weeks rather than two is better, then, then better to do it now rather than in February when, when you're going to take all three or four weeks. But as she said in that quote, the, the cases are leveling off, and, and so it is uh, quite a big of an impact for vulnerable families to, to stay off school. And, and, and then you also have to think of, okay, well, are the kids going to be mixing due to childcare, and are the safety measures as good in the childcare, the sort of backup childcare situations that you get with a, a week of remote learning or two weeks of remote learning? Mm. And, and so it's quite a challenge uh, as to whether or not you would actually want to do that. And most teachers, uh, there's a lot of debate in, in the teachers that I talk to as to whether this is even the best idea. And how are teachers feeling, uh, again, from teachers you've been talking to, as far as the exposures that we've seen in schools and the different health regions and concerns about even though people are being told not to have gatherings over the holidays, that that could happen? Well, I think there is a lot of concern, and, and you definitely, especially where uh, you've had a lot of exposures, like in, in the Fraser region and and uh, and others, and also in areas where they haven't, where districts have 
uh, more intensive plan. So in Vancouver, the high school students are are not there all day, uh, whereas in other districts they are. And so there's there's that question as well. And and that also kind of plays into the the decision about whether to go remote because there's an opportunity cost to the economy. So if you're going to spend that money uh, on 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 staying home for two weeks. Well, what else could you have done with that cost to improve safety in schools maybe for the next two months? And what kind of things would you think could work there or what what could that money be spent on? Well, I think there's uh, there's definitely kids who want to stay home and families who want to stay home don't really have an option right now to join a uh, transition program. So that did start in the in September. Those are all being wound down or partially wound down, and it's really hard to actually start doing that if you're seeing cases going up. Now, if we took those students out by funding teachers to teach those students remotely, that actually relieves some of the pressure on the, stu- uh, on the school. So that's, that's one thing that I would really be thinking about. The other, obviously, that I would like to see is a mask mandate. And we've certainly talked about that uh, since school went back in. Uh, do, do you think there is a possibility of that happening? Uh, I, it's it's always being discussed, and, and I know that my uh, I know my, my my union local president has been talking to uh, the public health officer in Vancouver Coastal and asking for that, and I know that Terry Mooring has been asking for that, but uh, the the health officials don't seem to think that that's going to be a good idea. I think it probably would have happened already if it was going to happen. Uh, which I think there'd be a lot of agreement uh, with that. Uh, Stephen, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us and for bringing us up to date on this. Appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Well, how are Canadians feeling about our federal government, the popularity rates of the various leaders? A new Ipsos poll done for Global News takes a look at that. And joining me on the line to talk about some of the findings is Daryl Bricker, who is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on. Uh, This takes a a look again at the federal liberal government, uh, kind of where the approval rating is. Uh, What does it find? Well, it shows on about 57% in terms of public approval right now. So when we go out and we ask uh, people uh, whether or not they're doing a good job of managing the pandemic, that's what they tell us. Slightly lower number for the Prime Minister's personal approval at 56. But that's still up uh, from the start of the year by about 13 points. And, I mean, we have a government, uh, clearly it's been a pandemic government, and there's been a lot of aid given out to people, a lot of support to people. That's got to play into this. Yeah, it does. But uh, it is interesting when you take a look at the overall approval of everything the government's been doing in the actual race. So if you actually look at how they're doing politically, they're not that much further ahead of the Conservatives. They're about three points ahead, which is pretty much where it's been through the year. It's fluctuated between about maybe a five, six, seven point lead down to, you know, two or three point lead all through the year. They haven't ever been behind, but they've never really pulled ahead either. And does this poll look specifically at the leaders or is it looking at the party in general? Both. So we didn't look at the leaders overall. We did look at the prime minister specifically and his approval level is up, as I said before, by 13 points. But we also looked at how people would vote if there was an election held tomorrow. And right now what it's showing is the liberals are at 35, the conservatives are at 32 and the NDP is at 18. So pretty much like what we saw in the last federal election. Uh, Which is really interesting to look at that, given all of the rumors and uh, this kind of uh, election buzz, people wondering when we might be going to the polls for a federal election. 
Yeah, and uh, if I, it, it looks, you know, given all of the things that have been going on, that the, that the Liberals would like to have a federal election, but looking at these numbers, they probably would not end up in any uh, better off than they are right now. I mean, obviously campaigns matter and things can happen, but uh, the result would be pretty similar to what they have today. Uh, which, again, for people in British Columbia looking at that, having just recently gone through a provincial election, I think many people would agree that was something where the provincial government looked at the numbers and said, hey, we can actually come ahead, get a majority government out of this. And that was a big push to do that. So, so yeah, it makes sense, like you're saying, if you're going to the, elec- going to the polls and it's just status quo, what's the point? Yeah, exactly. Particularly when you've got an opposition that's prepared to give you what you want. Right. So that's I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you you can basically govern as a majority right now. Uh, What about the numbers in B.C.? If we break it down by provinces, what did what does it look like here? B.C. is the most competitive region in the in the country where all three major parties are within a couple of points of each other. I think at, at the present time we have the liberals slightly ahead, but given statistical significance that you should basically just call it a tie. And that's between the NDP, the Conservatives, and and the Liberals. There's no other jurisdiction in which you have three parties that close. Uh, No, and even looking at that compared to the federal numbers with the NDP being so far behind and the Greens being uh, well behind that. Yeah, uh, the one place where the NDP can really uh, say that they're in a good position is in British Columbia. And I, I would expect that that's a, a bit of a spillover from what happened in the provincial election campaign and the popularity of the Horgan government in general. Uh, so the NDP brand is, does pretty well in, in British Columbia, but that's not enough to really escalate them beyond where they are in the House of Commons right now. And do you think when we do or when you do polls like this during a time when we're still dealing with a pandemic, we're talking a lot about vaccines, people are trying to figure out what they're going to do with the holidays, with various restrictions based on what province you're in. Does that skew the numbers or does that change kind of people, how they answer in that there's just so much going on? One would think that. (laughs) But then when you look at the consistency of poll after poll after poll, in fact, in the global news analysis, I called it, you know, the blurs day of politics. I mean, it's just blurring altogether for the entire year. And you look back to the last election campaign, the numbers are pretty consistent with what we saw there. So I think that people are giving us a pretty good assessment of what they're thinking about politics. The difference that we're seeing right now, though, is people are looking at the government and governments in general across the country, and they're, they're looking at them as public service agencies, as opposed to being partisan political institutions. So politics and what the government does have been somewhat separated in the minds of the public, which is why you can see a political situation that looks unchanged, but you can see approval levels much higher than they were previously because they actually like what the government's doing. It's not, but it's not necessarily spilled over into uh, strong approval of the Liberal Party. And when we look at this too, and we're getting a lot of the year-end stories, I know the Canadian Taxpayers Federation has put out their naughty and nice list and put the Prime Minister at the top of the naughty list, partly because of taxes, talking about the carbon tax. Was this poll done before or after the federal announcement on the carbon tax? Because certainly there were a lot of people that were taken aback by that and saying, well, wait a minute, you said you had no plans for this, and what is this going to cost us? Yeah, it was taken after, right. and and the, but the, but the, the thing is, right now, when you go and you ask people what are the most important issues facing the country, taxes is not high on the list. Uh, now that doesn't mean that it's going to remain there. And, and frankly, when we go back to the last election campaign, taxes ranked a lot higher. By the way, along with climate change, but everybody right now is really focused on two issues: one, fighting the pandemic; two 
getting the economy back on track, and they're very, very closely linked. Uh, so uh, at some point, we'll get back to things like taxes, deficits, climate change. But right now, the public agenda is dominated by those two other issues, the economy and fighting the, uh, fighting the pandemic. Which makes a lot of sense in that they're all so linked, and those two issues really need to be dealt with before we can deal with the others. Exactly. And, and when you, uh, um, you know, look at the, the public agenda and look what works for politicians being focused on what it is that people care about the most, that's where you tend to have the uh, tend to have the biggest impact in terms of your approval levels. So that's what the government's doing. It's being rewarded for that. But the interesting thing is it's not being translated over into the into the political situation. And why do you think that is? Uh, because I think people are, are, are not looking at politics as normal right now. They're not looking at it as a competitive situation. Also, when you take a look at the opposition parties, given we have virtual parliaments and, and you know, we don't have the normal type of uh, presentation of other options through the media in particular, uh, people aren't, you know, aren't in a partisan mindset. So if you're somebody like Aaron O'Toole, it's very, very hard to make headway. Or Jagmeet Singh, very hard to make headway in this type of an environment. All right. So well, they are interesting findings, definitely. Daryl, we will leave it there for today, but thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing those with us. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, we've been talking a lot about contact tracing and the importance of doing that during this pandemic. We know that hundreds of contact tracers were hired to try and make sure people who were exposed to COVID-19 know that they were exposed and know in a timely manner. But what does it actually mean? And what are the limits to contact tracing? Well, my next guest is here to talk about that. Caroline Colleen is the Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics for Evolution, Infection and Public Health health at SFU. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about this this morning. Good morning. Uh, When we talk about contact tracing, what are some of the limitations to depending on this and using this as one of the tools in fighting this virus? So one of the big limitations is, you know, as we know, transmission can happen before people show symptoms. And so if we wait for someone to show symptoms, get a test, the test gets returned, the tracers get activated and they call the contacts by that time, it might have been, you know, five or six days since the, the first case became infectious. And in that amount of time, even their contacts might have started infecting others. So it's just really hard to reach them to prevent those onward transmissions from the contact. Because one of the, the issues that's been or, or a concern that's been raised in BC has been the fact that testing is only done on people that are showing symptoms. So is that part of the, the issue here as well? Well, that's part of it. I mean, if we could test all the people who were infected, whether they had symptoms or not, you know, that would be great. But of course, we don't know who's infected before we test. Right. So, yeah, that's that's an issue. But it and it's harder to say, well, let's just test everybody because we'll have a lot of negatives. Uh, But it does mean that, you know, contact tracing can only get us so far, no matter how many tracers we hire. Is there a way we could be doing it better? So I think that we, I mean, I think contact tracing is best when it's fast, if we can process the tests quickly, which mostly we're able to do, uh, if we can contact a lot of the contacts, and that's um, easier to do if people have few contacts. So if you're seeing 40 or 50 people, that's a lot of phoning. If you're only seeing three people, well, okay, that's less phoning, right? Yeah. So those help. And then, you know, the earlier we can do it, the, the better it works. If we could screen people who are at risk, much more widely, we might be able to find uh, find people before they're 
they're that far through their infectious period and start to get ahead of transmission. So would that be something, say, in a scenario when we've been talking about having, say, rapid testing at long-term care facilities, if rapid testing is suddenly brought in, and I know there's issues there too with uh, the accuracy of the tests, but if suddenly we start seeing people that are testing positive that didn't have symptoms, the contact tracing would then go to those individuals, and again, before they've actually uh, had symptoms and perhaps been, uh, been exposed or been with other people. Right, exactly. So if you find them early, you can find the contacts early. And hopefully before those people even become infectious, you can you know, let them know. Um, and I think, the, you know, the other thing is you can find uh, more of the cases because you find people who might not have, have gone to seek a test if their symptoms weren't very severe. So you can get better coverage. The, the thing about you, you mentioned that there's accuracy issues with tests. It turns out from the point of view of population screening, not for diagnostics or for treatment, but for screening, even having a test that would catch 85, 90, 95% of the cases, I mean, that's great, right? If, we can, if you could know 85, right now we're kind of asking everybody in the whole population to behave as if they're infectious. Let's imagine we had, you know, false positive of 1%. We, we, we could potentially ask only 1% of the population to behave as if they're infectious. And, you know, we would still want to take cautions. We don't want to just say, oh, negative test, you're good to go, because there are problems with it. Um, but we could catch a lot more um, and get ahead of those transmissions if we could screen a bit more widely. Uh, does there become a time when contact tracing is just not effective at all in that we've, we've been hearing from people who said, wait, I was contacted, but it was so long after the actual uh, possible exposure. If I had been positive, if I'd gotten the virus, it wouldn't really have mattered anyway because I had no idea. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a crux of it. So even at its very best, with if you hired an infinite number of contact tracers and you tested immediately when people had symptoms and it only took a day and you, you, know, you did the best that you could possibly do, contact tracing will, when it's triggered by someone who has symptoms getting a positive test, will prevent at most about 30% of the onward transmissions. So if the kind of R number, the, the reproduction number without contact tracing is over about one and a half and you can only drop it by a third, it's not going to be good enough. But then in addition, when you have delays, you know, so you get that a third, if you take two or three extra days delay, you're only getting 10% of the cases. That's great. 10%. I mean, let's take it, you know, masks, maybe do 10, 20% or I don't know exactly. Maybe it's 40%. Any, any percent we can get, like we should probably do. But when cases, if you have a burst in cases, you end up with a burst in load for the contact tracers. That increases the delays. And then contact tracing becomes less effective even when it's needed most. So there are some fundamental limitations there for sure. And like you said, too, you could you could hire all the contact tracers you could possibly find. But we're also hearing uh, stories and situations where people either aren't answering the phone uh, or they're not being helpful when they answer the phone. In some cases, unfortunately, people are being belligerent to the contact tracers. So if you don't have the buy in from the people who are being contacted, that's got to be a huge issue, too. Yeah, absolutely. And that will decrease, you know, what we what we call the coverage, the, the fraction of cases that you're able to reach and who are willing and able to follow the instructions. And of course, that's key. But on the other hand, if you're, you know, if you're seven days after the symptom onset of the first case, then it kind of may not matter that much anymore because they're they're through. They may be through the, the infectious period or, or mostly. So I think it's a trade-off across all of these factors. Um, I think the other thing to note is that 
we know we can if we if we reopen too much and we uh, the support we get from symptomatic testing and contact tracing is only about maximally ever about a third we know we can double our cases every say two weeks we can never set up a system where we double our contact tracing capacity every two weeks right it's like we can't say okay every contact tracing team in the country you've got two weeks to go recruit another team just like yourself train them manage them get the call lines up, get, you know, we just, that's not, so you can hire a thousand more, 600 more or 2000 more. But if we let the cases grow because we can't double our contact tracing every two weeks or every three weeks or even every four weeks, for, you know, for months, then we will potentially run out of capacity for contact tracing. Does it does it matter to, uh, should we be prioritizing, or maybe we are, the scenario in that we talk about all of these flights that have exposures, but not transmission because of the measures that are taken in those scenarios to stop transmission. Uh, so is it less important, say, to contact trace people there than in another scenario where transmission would have been much more likely? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess, uh, you know, it depends on the effort required. So, you know, with a flight, people, you have to give your name to go to a flight. You don't have to give your name to go to somebody's private party, which, you know, we're not doing right now. Um, So it may be easier to trace just because there's already a list of everybody. Um, And it may be indeed less important if all of those measures are taken. I think people are very concerned about flights because you are sitting in close proximity to a lot of people. Um, But... On the other hand, you know, a lot of the kind of super spreader outbreaks we've seen have been more in places like social gatherings, eating, drinking, dining, you know, the parties, the bars and clubs and karaoke and spin class and and these things where people may be not wearing masks and and are are louder. So I think it's a trade-off really between the effort and the risk. You know, I would say probably, yes, if we were having big, loud dinner parties, that's probably more important to contact trace than a flight right now. On the other hand, if it's a matter of popping off an email to people that you already know, maybe it's less effort. I don't know. All right. Well, Caroline, we'll leave it there. But thank you so much. It's always great to chat with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, let's take a quick look at some of the good news stories of the year. A nice change from some of the doom and gloom. And uh, Global News reporter Crystal Guman Singh joins me on the line to do this. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, hi. I'm usually t- chatting with you when it's really not great news. So yeah. I'm I'm so excited to talk to you about this. Well, you know, as we head uh, closer to, to a lot of people getting a break, nice to remember there were some highlights and some good points. So what comes to your mind when you think of that? You know what, there really, really are. And this was sort of a special assignment for me. And I think maybe my bosses thought Crystal needs a little bit of a break. Let's let's get her to dig into some of the, the good news from 2020. So I was working on this feature, and it's going to be coming out next week, running on Global Nationals. So happy to chat with you about this. And, and I think that if we if we sit and pause and think of some of those stories, we all can think of the, you know, great, funny family um, lip sync videos, or, you know, the story of someone down the road who helped out their neighbor or, you know, the donations of iPads for, for kids who are going to be, you know, doing homeschooling. So there are some small ones, but also some really big ones. One that stood out to me, because I, I do cover a, a lot of health stories, and I was a, a health reporter previously, and, and one that sort of jumped out to me and went, oh, wow, this really didn't get a lot of attention, was the fact that wild polio was eradicated in, in Africa. And that this to me is just so huge because, you know, if you, if you dig into it a little bit, in the early 90s, according to the WHO's um, African re- uh, region uh, spokespeople, wild polio was paralyzing 
75,000 children every year in Africa. Hmm. It is now gone. They wow. haven't had a case in four years. They declared it. They declared Africa free of wild polio back in August. And, you know, Dr. Tetros Adham Gabriesis, who we all know is the director general of the WHO, was saying that ending wild polio in Africa is one of the greatest public health achievements of our time. And, you know, that's one of those health stories that sort of got pushed to the bottom of the list obviously because of the the need to cover COVID-19. So that's just one example. But, you know, we can look at it, uh, you know, in another way. Talk about public transportation. We do a lot of stories, not only in Canada, but all over the world about the need to, to bring down the cost of public transportation. How, you know, can cities manage these these fees for people? You saw, we saw Luxembourg this year officially roll out a plan, and it started this year, that public transit is free, whether it's a bus, a tram, a train, jump on, go where you need to go. That's a huge story. <laughs> that is, definitely. And that kind of goes uh, hand in hand with uh, what we've been talking about a lot also is uh, kind of the side effect of the environment. And and remember early on in the pandemic when we could see the water crystal clear in Venice and so many places that just look different. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, for the first time in 30-odd years, people in northern India could see the Himalayas. You know, that's that's pretty big. Air quality improved in China and in in Italy. Uh, So we saw a lot of, you know, environmental improvements, um, albeit because of a a direct and and negative link because of COVID-19. But, you know, there were some, and some really kind of funny, sweet moments. Um, and, And I think one of those ones that maybe people would enjoy if they paused and thought about it. Think of all of those pictures that kids drew and stuck in windows and people (laughs) heading out to clap and, you know, those images of police cars and ambulances driving by hospitals and, you know, turning on their sirens. Uh, Yeah, and you still see uh, some of the hearts in windows. uh, And even though that seven o'clock cheer uh, isn't nearly as loud, I know some people are still doing it. uh, It really did bring people together. And I think that's the key is that, you know, this, this was a tough year. No one's, no one's going to deny that. And, and likely these, uh, these issues will continue into 2021. We have been warned about that as well. Um, but there has been uh, a lot of good. And I think people could use a little reminder that, okay, there were, there were some nice moments. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing uh, your story on Global National. Uh, Crystal, thanks so much. If I don't talk to you beforehand, have a great Christmas and looking forward to the piece. Thank you so much. We'll talk again soon. Merry Christmas. Well, yesterday morning at this time, we were talking about the death of a 29-year-old woman. Natasha Forey had gone to Lionsgate Hospital four different times. The first visit was for a cyst on her leg. She went back with pain three other times. And we were talking to her mother about Natasha's death. She died on the morning of October 12th. And her mother talked about what her daughter's last words were to her. As a parent, you try to do everything for your child, and even though she was 29, you know, still her mother, and um, she called in so much pain, and um, I said, well, you have to go back to the hospital, and she goes, well, I, I don't want so, so much pain, and, and I said, Tash, you have to just go back there, and that's what I went, you know, since she's passed, obviously, I've fought with that, because I'm like, should I have sent her to a different hospital? Would have been better if, if she went somewhere else? 
The autopsy report states that the cause of death is due to a staph infection and necrotizing pneumonia of the lungs. Well, joining me now to talk more about uh, some changes that this particular case is calling for when it comes to laws in this uh, province that deal with wrongful death is the president of the BC Wrongful Death Law Reform Society. Michael James Penny is with us. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jill, for having me on. It's just such a heartbreaking story, and uh, we've seen the autopsy report. We've talked to Anne Forey uh, about this as well. How is your group involved, and what are you trying to do as far as the wrongful death laws in this province? Yeah, so our nonprofit was incorporated in 2015 by the families who've lost a loved one to wrongful death. Although we go much back uh, further in time to about 1995, we're known as the Wrongful Death Law Reform Working Group. So families when they lose a loved one to wrongful death, they want to be able to get accountability to hold the wrongdoer accountable, to right the wrong and ensure that it doesn't happen to someone else. And in BC, the last of all the provinces yet to modernize these laws, they're shocked to learn and devastated that they don't have this access to justice in this province if the loved one did not meet the discriminatory criteria of having both an income and dependence, as was the case with Natasha. So, uh, over time, families have passed the baton onward, and uh, now here I am as the president. And my predecessor, Catherine Adamson, was involved for the past 23 years, and she wrote a book on the death of her daughter, and we've been fighting with the government to try and get this modernized. And every day with our society, it's like Groundhog Day. Another story comes in, tragic, preventable, with a family unable to access justice. And Anne reached out to us at the beginning of December and we had a long call and I just, I was, I was in shock and agony and just so infuriated uh, by this story. And I knew that we had to get this out to the public because, you know, it was recent. It was so relevant to what's happening right now. And we just want to make our province safer uh, with more accountability accessible to the citizens of the province. As it stands right now, and looking at this particular case, I know the health authority uh, can't comment on specific of, uh, specifics of this case. Uh, there has been no uh, specific wrongdoing proven at this point. Uh, at this point, it's allegations. But it seems like there's a couple of things going on here in that human error is always going to be an issue. As humans, we will always make mistakes. But the law itself, the fact that it hasn't been changed from the 1800s, why is that? So originally it was uh, made back in 1846 to protect families when they lost a breadwinner and the families weren't left destitute. But 174 years later, we have a lot uh, more modern standards for respecting value of life and dignity. So uh, essentially, uh, I think what we're seeing here in British Columbia is we have a couple crown or a crown corporation, uh, ICBC, and we have um, the, the BC medical system that perhaps don't want to get in the line of fire or be accountable to the citizens of the province. So as we've come close to getting this modernized in the past, uh, ICBC has stepped in and advised the Attorney General Office that uh, they shouldn't proceed forward with this, even though every other province has seemed to be able to figure this out and modernize, uh, even including the Yukon as well. Uh, I think we have heard from the Attorney General in BC that this is uh, on the radar and something that they are looking at changing. Uh, would you call that, uh, are we making any progress there? I wouldn't say we're making progress other than the fact that they're now going on record, but they've been sitting on the Wrongful Death Accountability Act uh, since they came in office in 2017 and they've done nothing with it. 
so uh, when I look at David Eby's uh, mandate letter from John Horgan, there's not a single bullet point dedicated to reviewing the current Family Compensation Act. So saying it's in its mandate now, uh, it's why didn't you, why isn't it in your mandate letter? And why didn't you make a public statement on this prior to the election, which we asked you guys about? So we, we would like more of a commitment and more of a timeline than saying it'll merely be done in their mandate. It's, it's time for us not to have political games and for everyone to unite and champion a, a modern piece of legislation that uh, we can set an example for the rest of Canada with. Well, and when you look at the rest of Canada as well, and you and you touched on this, why is it that BC hasn't done what other provinces have done as far as updating the law? So uh, I think um, what, what was interesting, the closest we got to this was probably back in 2011 with uh, MLA Ralph Sultan out of West Vancouver. He put forth a private member's bill that was a carbon copy of Alberta's legislation. Alberta's legislation is not that great, but it's a vast improvement over what we currently have. And my understanding is that closed-door discussions happened between uh, the provincial government at the time with ICBC. ICBC gave them numbers that scared the provincial government off from making this modernization, uh, although the public's not able to see the numbers. They're not able to see this ICBC report. It's being kept secret. It's called an in-camera uh, item. So I think this is extremely unfair to the public, and we deserve to have an open, honest discussion about the impact of the province. Uh, and um, Anne touched on this yesterday. Uh, are you hearing from other people as well that they feel like loved ones, if they don't uh, fit this version of the 1846 law of having dependents and an income, they're not valued? Absolutely. And we've had a flood of stories coming in, especially with Natasha's story being published. We have a backlog of dozens of stories that our society is currently working through. And we have to evaluate uh, the merit of the stories. So uh, we believe that every family deserves access to justice. It's for the courts to balance the scales of justice and decide if a wrong actually happened. And as a result of that wrongful act, uh, their loved one was uh, killed because of that. So it's not for politicians to determine, it's not for the public to determine, it's for the legal system to determine, and every family deserves that opportunity. Well, we will continue uh, following up on this uh, and seeing where things go from here. Uh, Michael James Penny, thanks so much for joining us uh, and talking about it today. Thank you so much for having me and bringing this important issue to the awareness of the public. All right. Michael James Penny is the president of the BC Wrongful Death Law Reform Society. You can learn more about that if you want to go uh, to that website, intheirname.ca. You can also read uh, more on Natasha Forey's story as well as told by her mother, Anne, who we talked to on the program yesterday.